Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. We are delighted to be able to be here with you to answer your questions on the Word of God. Maybe you've got some questions about how better to relate God's truths in this increasingly skeptical culture we live in these days. Uh, We'd love to be able to give you some pointers, uh, some tips, maybe uh, some ways to be able to share in a way that not only touches the minds but the hearts of those you get an opportunity to relate God's truth to you. Bring those questions on. Maybe you've got questions about the Bible, a verse or two that has eluded your understanding. Maybe uh, you would like to uh, be able to uh, have a perspective on uh, the crazy events that surround us in this world, either the events of today, or maybe we can even take a look at the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy. We are all over it. Uh, Where we go is entirely up to you. It's your questions that determine the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So uh, we can see people logging on already on our various media platforms, joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Sean, uh, Tell us about those uh, media platforms. How can people get their questions to us? Well, if you're listening to us on Reach Radio, first of all, we appreciate you. You've been with us from the get-go. Yep. But our phone number, of course, is being put on hold until technology can be properly sorted out. I look to my right is a bit of foreshadowing of that. <laughs> but also noting as well, if you still want to get in hold, get a hold of us, rather, our email address is always available, questionsforhope at gmail.com. That questions is plural, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. You can take advantage of that at any time of the day to send us your Bible questions. Also note for those of you listening to this broadcast, and we maybe didn't get time to answer your question in the soon-to-be-clarified chat boxes, please email those to us so that we can keep track of them. That way we, of course, are able to answer your question and are able to do so efficiently without having to sift through previous broadcasts while the current one is ongoing. Yeah. (laughs) If you want to join us online, our first and most recommended resource for you is our own website, as it should be. We put effort into it. The website is calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. And if you click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen in the purple bar, rather, uh, you'll be sent to ccftucson.online.church. There you can engage with us face-to-face from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday, where that fits into your respective time zone, while the countdown clock letting you know just what that will be. Note as well, the same is true for YouTube and Facebook. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and if you want to join us on YouTube, it is a reason for hope. However, since we don't control when or why we are taken down from or even limited on those platforms, feel free to join us on our website. We encourage you to do so. They can't ban us on our own platform. But if you give us a like or subscribe, you'll be notified when you are going to be able to engage with us face-to-face there. We'd appreciate any and all of your participation in the broadcast. Just know that it is preferred to be limited to sincere Bible questions. Sincerity means you want to hear the answer. The Bible is the substance of the answer you are looking for, not just the question vaguely mentions it. And, of course, that this is asked in the form of a question. We will answer it in the form of a 
answer. So with that all being said, and before we get into your questions, we want to take a moment to pray, make sure the Lord speaks more than we do. So why don't we do that? Yeah, Father, we welcome your presence here, Lord. Uh, I thank you that your word truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that light would shine. We pray that you would give guidance directly to your people uh, in the ways that they should go, uh, the way to navigate in these times that we live in, the way to make the most of these, uh, who knows, maybe even moments that we have before you come back for us, Lord. We anticipate your return. We want to be found making the most of life. And uh, the only two things that we can touch that you've given us that last forever are your word and people. And so, Lord, uh, equip us during this time to become uh, more excellent in our, our accurate handling of your word and uh, more passionate, Lord, about communicating and connecting it with people, especially those on the outside uh, in looking at a relationship with you. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, starting us off, of course, we'll be anticipating your questions as they come in. A uh, few are follow-ups to those that have already been asked. We'll see if we can translate this. Um, I trust you were able to listen to yesterday's broadcast. Yes. We finished on the word faith movement, but when it comes to the concern over this, obviously we do not believe that it's a legitimate Christian ministry, that they are taking advantage of the benefits, exclusive, by the way, to the United States that are forwarded to the church as a nonprofit organization, but when it comes to people who are still caught up in it anyway, uh, individuals who, I guess, have quote-unquote testimonials. Uh, he gives an example of someone who had a tumor, they spoke, in the name of Jesus, leave, should they try this method, or would be a better way to pray when you are sick? Uh, of course, the testimonials say these things worked, but the question is, of course, is that the system, is that God working, and the system only mentions various pieces and truths of it, and so forth. Obviously, we have a few passages in the book of James where the prayers uh, actually accomplish something, but right. the question is, is it the way the prosperity gospel advertises? That's what needs to be clarified before we get into Scripture. Yeah, you know, the fact of the matter is we do have in the Bible, uh, you know, when we talk about the prosperity gospel and and so on and and the problems with it, uh, you know, like a lot of bad doctrine, uh, it is uh, based upon some things uh, that uh, are, uh, in fact, uh, true in our walk with God. You know, I, I think about how Simon Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 talked about how we are given great and precious promises by God and that his word is true and it is trustworthy and it's a foundation that we can rely upon. Uh, When God promises us things, he's going to deliver. And, uh, you know, if I can make a controversial statement, uh, I think those in the word faith movement and maybe in the more Pentecostal side of things um, actually have... Uh, something to be commended for, because they believe God's Word, they believe that God is one who acts upon His promises, and they expect God to work and move in power in their lives. However, And and, and I think all those things are great, but 
And it be the same point. For instance, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have a more vibrant missionary uh, motivation than any other legitimate Christian denomination out there. The problem is what they are missioning over is a lie, and a verifiable one at that. Yeah. And when these people have passion for God's Word, it's often presented piecemeal and in such a way where they're set up for spiritual disaster. So. Yeah, and, and that's the key, is this. Uh, you know, no... Uh, heresy, if we can use that term. No false doctrine uh, shows up and just says, hey, let's just do something that completely rejects the truth of God. No, it, it's always presented in such a way that it's, well, maybe 80, 90 percent true, but it's the other 20 percent that, that gets you. And, and with the word faith movement, this is where the problem comes in. Does God enjoy blessing his people? Yeah, he sure does. Uh, does God uh, make promises to his people that he's going to keep? Yes, he sure does. But when we then take those two things and uh, make another step and say, therefore, since God wants to bless his people and he's given us these promises, I can take these promises out of context and, in a sense, tell God what I want him to do and call that faith. Uh, you know, some word faith teachers like Kenneth Copeland and others will teach that your faith is a force that you can use to get God to do what you want him to do in this world. And, uh, you know, the, the, the problem with this is uh, when we start telling God his business, right, when I start dictating terms to God, well, a couple of major problems fall into place. First of all, when, you know, say, for instance, uh, I'm sick or I'm stressed, and uh, I'll just say, Lord, you said you'd keep in perfect peace those who mind or stayed on you because he trusts in you. Uh, I, th I therefore uh, tell you to bring this perfect peace into my life to remove this stressful situation. I do this in Jesus' name. Well, here's a problem, okay? I might have prayed that prayer, but is it really in Jesus' name? What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? That's the key issue. Yeah, the name is a representation of all that someone is. So, if Or I'm, their wishes, or their desires, or their perspective, yeah, right? All would encompass that. So yes. when we're talking about acting or speaking, in this case, in someone's name, you would say it as if you were them. And would Jesus be presumptuous with his Father? Would Jesus be demanding of his Father? Or as we saw in the Garden of Gethsemane, would he acknowledge his desire in the situation, but ultimately submit to the Father's will? Yeah, and, and, and that's the key. When I pray in Jesus' name, what I'm saying, in, when I say in Jesus' name, I'm, I'm making the statement that as closely as I possibly can in my fallen sinful nature, I, I, I want to pray like you prayed, Jesus. I want to pray for the things that you pray for in my life. And the, the best way to do that, obviously, is to pray scripturally and to pray according to Jesus' example. For instance, the Garden of Gethsemane. Faith teachers hate this, but uh, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. Well, why do faith teachers hate that so much? Well, because it would ultimately fly in the face of their assumption that if I have faith, and if Jesus is the paragon of faith, of trusting with reason, then he should be exercising this force according to his will, because that's what I'm showing people you ought to be doing. Yeah, he's not making demands of the Father. He's saying, Lord, this is my heart, 
This is what I'm facing. This is the barrel of the gun that's coming my way. But uh, if there's no other way to save mankind, not my will, but yours be done. You know, and, and so I look at that, and you know, uh, I was reading uh, uh, Chuck Smith's uh, commentary in the Book of Acts. He was talking about some of the prayers the early church prayed, and he made the uh, interesting observation. It sounds rather commonsensical, but the interesting observation that you know we should probably analyze prayers that God answered, and uh, you know, when we take a look at Jesus' prayer, uh, he didn't have the cup passed from him. But an angel was sent to strengthen him, and he was given the power necessary to face the challenge that he was going to have of bearing the sins of the world and, and uh, paying the price for our sins and making our salvation possible. The Lord answered his prayer, maybe not in the way Jesus prayed it, this cup passing from me, but he did answer it in the prayer, the way that Jesus prayed and say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And, and this is what I love about this. This guarantees that I hit the bullseye every time I pray in Jesus' name. I can know I'm praying in Jesus' name. When I come before the Lord, and man, I can pour out my heart before God. And, and the scripture says to do that. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. But when I pour out my heart before God, I always, at the very end, after I say, Lord, this is what's going on, and this is really what I, I, I want to see you do, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know, when I do that, I'm praying in Jesus' name, because I'm praying just the way that Jesus prayed. Right. And, and, and it's the safeguard as well. Uh, you know, I think of uh, Ruth Graham's famous statement, that if God had answered her prayers just the way she had prayed them, she would have married the wrong man six times. You know, so uh, don't make demands of God and call that faith. Uh, you know, I think there's a higher faith. The highest faith that we can have is to take the things and the people and the situations that matter to us most and say to God, God, you know how much this means to me. You know how much I would love to see you work in this particular way, but I'm giving it to you. I'm trusting in you to do what's right. Uh, I don't think God's going to look at that kind of prayer and go, no, nah, I don't think so. You don't know. No, God's always going to answer that prayer. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, First John chapter 5 and verse 14 says, and if he hears us, we know we have the requests which we have made of him and whatever we ask. So, um, you know, that's, that's why we're not proponents of the word faith movement. Like I say, there's sincere people that are involved with it, uh, that uh, really study God's word and believe his promises and uh, live just as if God moves in power in the lives. And I think we can learn a lot from that. But uh, the, the real hook in that is when we begin to tell God his business, and we begin to say, if I have enough faith, then I'm going to be healed. Well, what if God's going to be more glorified in your life if you're not healed? You're going to be healed someday when you see the Lord in heaven. But what if the Lord says, no, I've got a lesson you can only learn. Like Paul, with his thorn in the flesh, three times he asked God to take it away. He said, no, my strength's made perfect in weakness. Maybe that's where God has you. But it's going to require more faith to trust God in the midst of an outrageous circumstance than it is just to believe that God's going to come along and take something hard away. Yeah, and that's really what brings this down to the heart of the issue. If the argument is, well, this worked for me, there's one of three answers to that claim or that counterpoint. If we can establish it's not scriptural, the argument would be, but it worked, therefore it must be scriptural despite all of these plain issues that make it a difficulty to come to my conclusion. If the miracle 
comes up, and that is your argument for this being in the basis of truth. And again, it is a valid point. What lines up with reality is the dis- definition of truth. But if reality is what's establishing doctrine, we need to make sure it starts with the actual source, right? because the source is just as important as the information you're being given. Otherwise, we'd assume there's an ulterior motive, and this is the reason why. You received a miracle. Okay, that much can be stated. Who gave you that miracle? Was it coincidental? Was it just the result or circumstance of your body performing its natural processes? And again, I wouldn't say that be always the case with the tumor, but you can say that it does happen. And notice, this is me speaking as a biblically ordained pastor. I will allow for the fact that God has designed our bodies in such a way where it doesn't always have to be a miracle. It can be just something we're thankful for. Note that. Second, it could be God intervening, but in spite of, not in light of, these bad doctrines. Because note, the working assumption is this isn't in line with the Bible, but it worked, so what's the deal? The third example could be it's an act of judgment. The enemy is, in fact, being allowed to remove this physical malady so that it further propones you into this false doctrine and keeping you at arm's length from Jesus and from his word. So note those possibilities, none of which actually address the issue If God is doing this in spite of his word, saying that's not what this is actually meant to do, he was gracious to you, but that doesn't mean that it's correct. If it's your natural body's processes, it's not going to prove that it's true. It just means God built you right. And of course, if Satan was allowed to hand you over to your flesh to build up your pride or to solidify false doctrine, that really doesn't make it true. So the point being made is just that. Make sure that when we're judging truth, it's based on the information, not the experiences associated with them alone. Yeah, we never want to build doctrine on someone's experience, especially if it's extra biblical. Uh, You know, there's a great example of this in Scripture. In Mark chapter 5 and verse 25, we're told, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. She said, if I may only touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples says, you see this multitude thronging you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, this this incident used to bother me so much. Because here you see this desperate woman in this crowd saying, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, literally the tassel of his robe, the tzitzit that they have uh, on uh, the official Jewish uh, robe of that, that time, if I can just touch that, then I'm going to be healed. Well, where in the word does it ever say that something like that is, is going to happen, you know? And, and when I saw, I see this woman doing that and then seeing that she actually gets healed, it used to bum me out because I thought, oh man, Lord, don't you know there's going to be all these charlatans and con men who are going to say, I'm going to send you a tassel and it's going to release your faith. Then you touch the tassel and then you're going to be, be healed and, and all this. And, and, and like, you know, why, Lord, did you do things that way? Well, a couple things about this. First of all, you know what? The Lord will take any kind of faith that you want to bring to him. It doesn't have to be informed faith. It doesn't have to be biblically accurate faith. He'll take any faith that you got as long as you're coming to him, right? 
That's right. that's key. Secondly, God is so much more interested in blessing us than making sure we got our T's crossed and I's dotted. He's going to bless people because it's his nature to bless people. He loves to reach out and touch people. We should never forget that. That's another illustration here. But notice something. Jesus stops the entire crowd. I mean, this huge mob that is thronging him and says, wait, somebody touched me. And the disciples says, who isn't touching you? You're being thronged in this crowd. No, someone touched me. I felt uh, healing virtue power go out of me. He stops the whole crowd, finds the woman, right? Doesn't leave her in her superstitious faith. Doesn't say, okay, next time you got a problem, go and find some holy guy and touch the hem of his garment. He said, no, your faith has saved you. Faith in who? Faith in Jesus. That's also key, the yeah. object of the faith, not yeah. the faith for faith's sake. Faith means something. Trust with reason. She trusted Jesus was capable right. of healing her. That's true, but made an object the means by which that would be achieved. So if someone says, well, I took communion and I got healed, great, but where does healing come from, the wine or from the God who actually heals. Yeah, and, and you know, here's the thing. Don't build doctrine on experiences. Uh, you know, I guess it was uh, Benny Hinn who was uh, being interviewed uh, by an individual who was somewhat skeptical of his claims, and he goes, oh, yeah, you know, the vast majority of uh, the healings that happen in our crusades are psychosomatic, but, you know, who cares? What difference does it make? Psychosomatic in- meaning they're all in your head. It's not actually providing healing. It's just alleviating symptoms because of a relieved mental state. Yeah, you know, someone is able to stand up because they're so jazzed up on adrenaline because they're at this event or, or something like that. Uh, you know, that's not how God heals. When God heals, he really heals. He doesn't heal psychosomatically, he doesn't heal superficially. It's not a healing that's going to last three days and then wear off. Um, God totally and completely heals. And, and so, you know, when people get involved with these superstitious things and they say, well, I went to this crusade and I got healed, that must mean that crusade is legitimate. No, it doesn't mean anything of the, 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 the sort. Uh, it just means that God is a gracious God who heals sometimes in spite of us, not because of us. So, you know, and, and you have to be careful with this, and it, it crosses over into other things. I remember during the uh, TV evangelist scandals, a guy came up to me and he said, oh, I've lost my salvation. I go, well, how'd you lose it? He goes, well, I got saved at this TV evangelist crusade, and now that I found out he's a big phony, I, I'm sure I'm not saved. Well, I said, well, wait a minute, that that crusade, um, did you invite a TV evangelist into your heart? The guy looked at me and goes, no, I, I invited Jesus into my heart. Do you believe this TV evangelist rose from the dead? He said, no, I, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I said, so um, you didn't put your faith and trust in an evangelist, you put your faith and trust in Christ. Well, I'm here to tell you something. Romans chapter 10 says the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And, uh, and, and that's where we got to be careful, because sometimes we will think, because I was at a certain place at a certain time, because a certain evangelist was there, that's why I was healed. No, if you were legitimately and actually healed, only God does the healing. And any uh, minister, any pastor, any evangelist worth his salt is going to tell you the exact same thing. So let us know if that helps you out, Yari. Here's a, <laughs> two great questions from Isaiah. This is fun. Uh, will angels rule and reign the, you say celestial kingdom, so that we don't give credence to Mormonism, I'll just say the universe. The heavenly realm, yeah. yeah. Uh, if, 
we rule and reign on earth or we rule and reign over the entire universe in the new heaven and new earth. And he's curious about uh, just, I guess, stewardship of space. Uh, I get where you're coming from, Isaiah, because there is a passage in Revelation 16 where it notes there's an angel that's in stewardship over the sun, and he makes an observation of sorts. But the, or it's in Revelation 19, excuse me. Right, uh, yeah. But the point being made is this. When we're asked about hierarchy in regards to responsibilities given to angels as opposed to humans, the scriptures don't say that we're given stewardship over this earth. In the Millennial Kingdom, that's Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, I believe, it notes that we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years on the earth, but that's not our eternal state. Right. That, that earth will eventually pass away right. after the thousand years. The two passages to keep in mind, Isaiah, the first is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and the second is Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I'm repeating because I want to make sure you're informed chapter and verse for that. Right. So when we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is making a point against them suing each other, bringing each other to court, which was as common back in Greek culture as it is, it is today. But he corrects them on this by saying in verse 20, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So far, so good as far as your understanding goes. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Now here's where the hierarchy gets disrupted. In verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? So he's saying, if you're going to be, and let me clarify my dictionary here for a second, when we go to the book of Judges in the Old Testament, the yeah. way biblical language advertises this word judge, right. were they all people in powdered wigs and a gavel deciding on petty court cases or uh, big, uh, I guess, judicial issues? No. Were they people that decided whether or not the people in Israel went to heaven or hell? No. They were people with what? Governmental authority. Just anyone with power. That's yeah. what judge means. Administrative one, authority, yeah. Yeah, one yeah. with power. The word literally in Hebrew would be the book of the Elohim, and there are false teachers who will jump on that. But the point being made is this. Anyone with power judges. So judging would be exercising power over or to something. That's where we get into Hebrews chapter 2. If we're judging angels, they'll be under our authority post-glory. Now, why do I say post-glory? Because in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, the first chapter goes on to clarify the difference between Jesus and the angels. But in a continuation of this point, he says in verse 5, "...for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels." So again, you're right that it's not under the authority of angels, but what about space? Well, here's the point that he's making. One testified. Gotta go to space. Yes, gotta <laughs> go to space. One testified in a certain place, saying, "This is verses six through eight, and the author of Hebrews is quoting. I believe it was uh, Psalm eight. Is this passage?" Yeah, uh, we can verify. Yeah, but, it is. Yeah. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, or yeah. the son of man that you ca uh, take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. That would include not just this earth, but all of it. Note this. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Then he goes on to explain. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he let nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. So note this. Are we in authority over angels yet? Not yet. No. So I note Not that. last time I checked. But in verse 9 it says, But we see Jesus, who was made 
little lower than the angels. Notice, human being, little lower than the angels. Jesus became that. He who, in Hebrews 1, is so much better than they, was made lower than them. Note the hierarchy here. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, may taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And the word perfect means complete. Right. So note the, I guess, uh, leadership structure here, Isaiah. When we're talking about the angels' right. role in creation, at this moment, before we are in our glorified state and in our separation from God, they are higher than us as far as substance and authority. Power, smarts, everything else. Yeah. But... After the finished work of Jesus, him bringing many sons to glory, that's you and me, we will be put in authority over the angels, not just because pragmatically that makes sense. Now we can handle it. We want to abuse authority or, you know, play chess with our angels or whatever. We'll have Christ's character in that kind of authority. But it's noting in status the angels will be subject under us the same way and for the same reason Jesus has those creatures and subject under him. We'll reflect God's nature that way. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 2, read the first chapter as well so you note his point with Jesus. But that would be noting the hierarchy of uh, angels as opposed to humans. Not yet, but in our glorified state, they will be under us, and if we have authority over the world, that don't mean that they'll be going around doing their own thing. Yeah. So let us know if that's clear. Uh, I'll pass this one on to you. How close are we? Same questioner, to the return of Christ. He doesn't want to be a scoffer, but could it be another 50 years or so? Well, James says uh, in James chapter 4, the judge is near even at the doors. Uh, at That was written 2,000 years ago, uh, nearly. So uh, the Lord could come at any moment. Uh, Jesus' advice for us is to watch for his return. This is what we call the doctrine of imminency, and one of the key reasons why we take a pre-tribulation rapture position. Because uh, if there's some prophecy of Scripture that needs to be fulfilled before Jesus can return, well, then we need to be watching for that uh, particular prophecy to take place. But Jesus said there was none. Uh, It's going to be like the days of Noah, where people ate or drank, going about their business as usual, till the day Noah entered the ark, and then uh, the flood came and took them all away. He said, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. He said, what I say to you, I say to all, watch, in Mark chapter 13. So in other words, we are to have a continued anticipation, day by day, that Jesus could return. Now, having said that, does that mean that Jesus is going to return in the next 20 minutes? We don't know. Could? Maybe not. Is Jesus going to come back in the next 20 years? Could? Maybe not. Next 200 years? Could? Maybe not. Who knows, right? He doesn't tell us that information. He tells us to be ready. Now, some people will roll their eyes and say, so all this stuff about prophecy and all this stuff about the stage being set, I guess I can ignore all of that because nobody knows he's coming, might come another 500 years. Well, hold your horses. First of all, Jesus said, watch for his return. In fact, he uh, talked about a person who says, my master delays his coming and uses an analogy of a person like that who begins to get drunk and abuse other people around them. So we don't want to fall into that trap. You know, if I know that Jesus can return at any moment, 
It's going to affect the way I live my life morally and spiritually. It's going to affect what I invest in, what I turn away from. So that's the kind of perspective that we need to have. Now, having said that, I know we're kind of using, well, you're kind of dancing around my, my question, what if Jesus doesn't come another 50 years or so? Well, here's the deal, right? Um, I just celebrated what I call my Beatles birthday last week. Uh, will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? Fortunately, my lovely wife, Pam, still needs me and feeds me, so that song has come to pass in my life. You know, I never thought I'd hit 64. You know, I remember coming to Christ in 1973 and wondering if I would even uh, graduate from high school before the Lord came back again. Well, a lot of wonder in the bridge since 1973, uh, more years than I want to count right now. But the fact of the matter is, you know, right now, I'm 64, and I've been looking for the Lord's return almost immediately after I got saved. As soon as someone explained to me Jesus could come back at any time, I've been anticipating that return. So I'm 64 years old right now. Say, for sake of argument, I live to be the ripe old age of 94, right? That means I've got 30 years left here on planet Earth. Now that tells me something. Either in the next 30 years, one of two things are going to happen. Either Jesus is going to come back for us and snatch me up to be in his presence at the event we call the rapture, which I pray for constantly, or in 30 years, I'm going to go through the valley of the shadow of death and guess where I'm going to stand, right before Jesus. Either way, I end up with the same person in the same place. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, Isaiah, uh, this world's only got like 30 years left. You know, I'm, I'm checking out at that point. Whether Jesus delays his coming another 30 years after that, I don't know. I'll leave that in my hands. But if I realize that I don't have an unlimited amount of time to squander in this life, there's one life will soon be passed. Only what is done in Christ is going to last. And I want to take this life that I have, as brief and as short as it is, and invest in the Lord. One of the things that's really a weird phenomenon, and I, and I think a lot of people uh, out there will relate to this. It's funny how the older you get, the faster time seems to pass. I mean, I remember being in grade school and, you know, being kind of a clock watcher. And man, it was like 20 minutes till we got out at the end of the day at three, you know, it was 2.40. Man, I never thought I was going to get out of there. And, you know, I remember when I was a punky freshman in high school, I, I thought I'd never going to get out of high school. I mean, time seemed to drag so slow. But just it's so amazing. The people that I've talked to who've lived uh, good long lives and, uh, you know, been ready to check out, they've all told me the same thing. You won't believe how fast it goes. Stop and think for just a second. When you're a punky freshman in high school, you never thought you were going to get out of there. But I bet you by grad night, your senior year, you found yourself saying, man, I can't believe how fast all that went. Life works the exact same way. To quote the great theologian Ferris Bueller, life comes at you pretty fast. If you don't st step back and take a look around, you could miss it. Well, this life is going to pass by faster than we know. So it only makes sense to me, Isaiah, to keep my eyes focused on Jesus, because whether he comes from me or whether I go to him, uh, I'm going to end up in the same place forever. And in the words of an old German proverb, eternity is a long bargain. And oh. also note that your impact, or the impact rather your attitude has on your character, is not something to underestimate. The point that's being made by Jesus and by everyone who upholds this doctrine properly 
is just that. Do I want to adopt an attitude that's either going to lead me to abuse my fellow servants or that's going to be something the Lord will reward right. when He comes? So if the when is a non-issue, it could be tomorrow, it could be today, I want to serve Jesus whether it's one of those two things, because right. eventually I'll be right. If on the other hand, I adopt the attitude of saying, well, it's not going to be tomorrow, therefore I may as well live like hell today. That sort of attitude, and again, it's not everyone who denies the rapture, but the point being made is just that. If I have the attitude of the Lord delays his coming, or I'm even entertaining those questions, I'm already in the wrong mindset I should have towards these things. It should be an expectation, not pessimistic, uh, I guess, seclusion to this world getting worse and worse. Yeah. Just focus on where you are today, because the more you focus on what's going on, apart from what you're supposed to be doing, it's just going to get depressing. Yeah, and and uh, I was told this early on in my walk with Christ, and uh, it, it really made an impact on me. I hope it makes an impact on you. Our attitude towards Jesus' return should be just like uh, well-loved children waiting for that sign that their beloved parent is finally coming home at the end of a work day. Uh, you know, where you hear the garage door go up or the car pull into the driveway. Uh, we should be looking for the Lord's return because we love him and we want to see him. And uh, we can't wait until we get to be the, with him face to face. If you have that kind of attitude, you're never going to go wrong. All right. And then uh, one more follow through before we get to the next question is when we are with the Lord, will we know what's happening on earth? Will we care? The passage people usually go to as an affirmative to that is Hebrews 12, verse 1, but the problem is the context of that was a follow-up to verse 11, looking back on the histories of those who had faith before us and them not being disappointed. We should live in light of that. The And that's a short, short answer. Just let me know if you need more information, or if someone else listening wants to know more, let us know. We'll give it higher priority. Yeah. The point being made, though, is that uh, when we're in the presence of Jesus, he will fully captivate our attention. It's not that we won't care about our loved ones is that the object of everything we loved about anyone else will be right there. I think we'll be occupied. You know, there's an odd verse that I think uh, you can point to that says that those who are in heaven know what's going on here on earth and do care. Um, It's uh, the passage we're going to be exploring tonight in our study through the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 19, there's going to be an incredible party thrown in heaven to commemorate the destruction of Mystery Babylon and uh, the, the the whole Babylonian rebellious financial and religious system that raises itself up against God. Well, why is heaven going to rejoice over the destruction of this city and of this system if they're not aware of what's going on on earth? Clearly, they're aware of some events that are going on on earth, and clearly it has an emotional reaction on them. As a matter of fact, uh, spoiler alert here. Uh, The word hallelujah is used in that passage, describing that event four times. It is not used in the entire Bible after Psalm 150 prior to that moment. It's almost like God is saving that beautiful expression of praise for when it really counts. So, A, people in heaven will know what's going on when that takes place, and they will care what's happening on earth when that takes place. So if that's true on the big things, is it true on the small things? Well, we'll leave that in God's hands. Yeah, and just a little, 
I guess, spoiler alert as well for what we'll be talking about tonight, the fact that they care about these things on the earth is because it directly pertains to the object of their attention. They're celebrating God's nature and his faithfulness in judging these things in the way that he promised he would by telling them to wait in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10. So Yeah, yeah. Um, We'll we'll talk all about that. It's going to be a great study. Watch online, or if you can be here, come on out at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Standard and Pacific Time. All right, uh, contradiction for the day, issues regarding the Bible. Obviously, this one comes up a lot more often than it should, but it is one of the more well-thought-through ones because it actually challenges a substance of two issues rather than misrepresenting one or the other. Uh, Could you turn to Luke chapter 8 and verse 41, where it notes that when Jairus' daughter died, or was alive when his, or in her rather, uh, father, Jairus, asked Jesus to heal her. The contradiction is, in Luke chapter 8 and verse 41, you can verify, uh, she was still alive when Jairus asked Jesus to heal her, and then she died on the way to heal her. Is that correct? Um, Yes. uh, The event uh, we already talked about earlier, the, the huge crowd, the woman touches Jesus' garment, is instantly healed. Uh, And then uh, in uh, verse uh, 49, it says, While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. So when he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except uh, Peter, James, and John, the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, saying, Do not weep, she's not dead. Uh, But he said, Do not weep, she's not dead, but sleeping. They ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. And again, just to read in full detail, verse 41, when did Jairus ask Jesus to heal her? Uh, This was before the incident with the woman who touched him and... uh, and can you read the passage, verses 41 well, and 42? verse 40 says, So it was when Jesus returned, the multitude welcomed him. They're all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus and a ruler of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. Dying. In okay. the process. So he was aware of his daughter's state. When he met Jesus, he received a messenger along the way that informed him his daughter had died. But the quotations are as follows. Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Jairus comes to Jesus and acknowledges what? If you believe I can do these things, but note the point. So then we go to the supposed contradiction, because in the Gospel of Matthew, and let me make sure I didn't lose my place here, chapter 9 and verse 18, she apparently was dead, and Jairus asked Jesus to raise her. Now, before we get into what a contradiction actually means, let's just note the presentation here. Jairus asked Jesus to raise her from the dead. The contradiction is, was Jairus' daughter dead or alive when he asked Jesus to heal her? Heal her from what? What was killing her or what she was now in state of, that she was dead? There is an issue in the sense in which what Jairus was asking Jesus to do in Luke and what Jesus was asking, or Jairus was asking Jesus to do in Matthew. But let's just follow the flow of the narrative. In verse 9 of verse 9. Chapter 9 and verse 18, it says, while he spoke these things to them, Jesus is speaking to a crowd. That's interesting. A ruler came and worshiped him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him and so did his disciples. 
Then it notes the incident with the woman with the issue of blood. Then it notes in verse 23 exactly where we found ourselves in Luke. So as far as the whole issue is concerned, the flow of the narrative is what's being challenged, not the substance of the claims. But let's take this a step further. Is this a contradiction? Well, first of all, what is a contradiction? If anyone brings these up, understand first what it is they're saying. It's a fancy multi-syllable word. Makes people sound, uh, I guess, informed, but let's make sure that we actually have our dictionaries open because they're trying to change that all the time. A contradiction isn't a difference in detail. A contradiction isn't an inclusion or exclusion of information. Right. A contradiction is a violation of the fo second formal law of logic. A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. So if this was a contradictory report, it would either have to be in the substance of what happened, what? Jairus's daughter was never sick. She never died. Right. And the other account would say Jairus came to Jesus when his daughter was either in the process of or already had died, and what? Right. Jesus healed her. That would be a contradiction because the actual substance of the claim cancels itself out. What we have here is an issue of timing, so let's flow through this one step at a time. In the introduction of Luke, what information were we given when Jairus met Jesus? Daughter was in the process of dying, and then what? He was later informed she had died. Right. Does that in any way conflict with where Matthew begins and that his daughter had died? No. Okay. On the way, Jairus's daughter said, or Jairus's daughter, she was dead. Jairus said, or was informed, that his daughter had died. Does that mean that he couldn't have informed Jesus in this additional detail given to us in Matthew? No, not at all. In fact, does that conflict with anything Jesus said to him as a follow-through to this? Don't trouble the teacher anymore. What does Jesus say in response? Only believe and your daughter will live. Does that line up with verse 18? Yeah, exactly. So here's the point. Yeah. If, and this, again, as far as contradictions go, this is one of the better ones because it at least requires you to look it up and think this through. Most don't even go that far. The point being made, though, is this. Ask someone if this actually troubles you. What is the reason why you would bring this up as a contradiction? And this is just a little mind into the skeptic, the more reasonable of the skeptic. We'll Iron Man this for a moment. Yeah. Why would a contradiction bother somebody? Well, because we believe, you and I as Christians, not the atheist, that the Bible is a reliable source of information concerning a relationship with God. The skeptic, let's say, in this situation is going to, to their credit, say, I don't want to take my information from something that can't get its facts straight logically. Right. That's fair. Yeah. But if someone brings this up and you can walk through with them, this isn't logically inconsistent. It just starts halfway through where Luke gave the entire account. One right. additional detail, Jairus didn't meet Jesus when he informed him his daughter had died. Right. Luke 18, or Matthew 9, 18 begins where Luke, uh, what would it be, chapter 9 and verse what? Uh, I believe it was 40. Chapter 8, yeah. yeah. So note, this is where the narrative jumps in, because Matthew and Luke, although they're synoptic, they don't include every detail because they're not every the same perspective is the point. But here's the point. Anything in the narrative conflict with one another? No. Any substance to the events? Luke 840. Luke 840. Yeah. Any events or substance to the outcome of the event conflict with each other? No. Any difference in the sequence of events? No, not in sequence, just steps one through two are left out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's so funny how many times 
when a person will say, oh, it's a hopeless contradiction, it's an addition of detail. And there, there is hope. <laughs> you know, uh, to give you an, a, an analogy about how uh, sometimes uh, we uh, have accounts that are both true but require additions of detail, a great analogy would be, say I went downtown today. And uh, I knew, Sean, that uh, you were really interested in city politics. And uh, when I went downtown, I saw the mayor of the city of Tucson. And then later on, I saw the fire chief. Well, say, you know, I ran into you and a little later and I said, hey, I was downtown today and I saw the mayor. Well, maybe a little later, I ran into my uh, buddy, Mike Coyle, who's a retired firefighter. And I said, he said Mike, hey, Mike, I was downtown today and I saw the fire chief. Well, if you and Mike got together after that and said, yeah, I talked to Scott. He said he went downtown today. Uh, he told me he saw the fire chief. If you looked at Mike and said, well, Scott told me he saw the mayor. I guess Scott's lying because he told you he saw the fire chief and he told me he saw the mayor. It would be if he said the only person who was there was the fire chief. Or the only people I saw were the fire chief or the mayor. But in this situation, both of you could come together and give an addition of detail. Oh, I guess Scott went downtown today and saw the fire chief and the mayor while he was there. And it wouldn't be rational for us to have this conversation and say, therefore, Scott never exists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah and sure. that's usually the next step. But <laughs> So make sure that that's... But the, does that help you out? I hope that helps you out. Yeah. That's the whole point. When we're dealing with contradictions, step one, know what a contradiction is. Step two, call their bluff. Go to the passage, think it through. It's a lot easier than it sounds. So make sure that that's your training in this matter. Young grasshopper. Yes. That being said, a uh, question from Maggie, who had a, uh, let's say, heated conversation with someone who also claims to be a Christian and also is caught up in the abortion nonsense that's going around the internet right now. When it comes to the issues surrounding, I guess, poor information or poor presentation of it, we can perhaps follow through on the abortion issue itself in a moment. But when it comes to talking with people that aren't talking to you, they're talking at you. And you get understandably angry. What is the Bible's position on, A, the place for anger, B, the execution of anger, and, of course, uh, the kind of relationships, because this was the overall issue. She wanted to, Maggie, have uh, relationships with these people in her life, but this issue was just making them so hostile, so dismissive, and so confrontational, and the more that she engaged with them seriously, the less, I guess, mature it got. Yeah. So how should we as Christians deal with these issues? Because they're becoming if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, uh, becoming more uh, often than not. Yeah. Well, I think uh, a couple things. First of all, you know, the, the name of our program, Maggie, is A Reason for Hope. And A Reason for Hope takes its uh, roots from a passage in the book of First Peter chapter 3 that I think can give us some wisdom and insight in this area. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13, we read, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats and be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now notice, we are to give a reason for the hope that's within us. How? What should characterize the way we relate God's truth? Meekness. Meekness. Now, that word literally means strength under control. It carries the idea of being gentle 
with people, not beating them over the head with our scripture hammer. So when we're in a conversation with, a say, a, uh, a person who's a non-believer, that's really, really key. And it's also really important for us to do that as believers. You know, a, a passage that has really helped me in my ministry life is uh, in Titus chapter 3 and verse 9, where it says, But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies and contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after a first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. We're also told that God's servant should not quarrel, but be patient to all, able to teach. Now, notice, patient to all and able to teach. When you get involved with one of those conversations on a hot-button issue, and boy, I I, got to bear witness with you, Maggie, that sometimes I am just amazed at how uh, seemingly right-on, uh, or Christians who go to seemingly right-on churches who sat under right-on teaching will uh, just, uh, you know, completely miss the point when it comes to issues like being pro-life. Uh, you know, the Bible really doesn't leave us a lot of room to maneuver on that particular subject, because in Psalm 139, we are told when life begins. There, King David said, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in the days which were ordained for me when there was not yet one of them. We can go into other scriptures about uh, all of this, including uh, in utero, Jesus and John the Baptist having fellowship with one another. It seems like there's definitely a person there, one who was uh, second trimester and one who was first trimester. Being both recognized as persons, having reactions and status, being recognized as such by each other. We can also go to passages that are taken out of context, like Maggie did in Genesis 2, and noting that's when life begins and so forth. All the nonsense it can go, but this is the point. But here's the deal. When you get into a conversation like that, it's always good to set your terms. Yeah. You know, to say, you know, hey, you know, you're a born-again Christian, right? And they'll say, yeah, well, you believe the Bible's the Word of God, right? Yeah. Well, don't you think we should take our takes on this from... The, the, the Bible in context. They say, oh, yeah, you know, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Uh, so every time you take your first breath, then you become a living soul. Well, you know, again, that was an extraordinary set of circumstances. God doesn't bring everybody into the world by forming them out of the dust of the ground and then breathing in their nostrils the breath of life. We, we uh, definitely enter this world in a different process involved with all of that. Do we have an example of someone being recognized as living after they had taken the first breath, or do we see the contrary through natural birth like we see in Luke 1? Yeah, and, and, and if you can say, hey, you know, just consider these verses— and, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to uh, come to the conclusion that you've come to that uh, life begins at birth. Um, you know, Why and then use future tense verbs. It's almost as if you're giving somebody time for the Spirit to lead them into all truth. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, uh, I have found that uh, God's Word never returns void. And if we can plant some of these biblical time bombs, if you will, uh, Scripture seeds within their hearts and allow God, you know, to tend the soil and water it and, you know, maybe uh, come to the place uh, where they change their opinions. For instance, uh, there was a time in my Christian life, because of my background being a thoroughgoing evolutionist and raised and all that stuff, I thought, oh, yeah, God could have used evolution, uh, theistic evolution, to uh, create the world. But the more I studied God's Word, the more I became convinced that evolution, no matter how much you try to fold, spindle, and mutilate it, just doesn't fit the biblical account. And I'd much rather put my faith and trust in Jesus 
who had a very different view of evolutionism and so forth than uh, these modern scientists. But it took me a few years to come to that place. But, you know, I, I didn't don't think I would have been helped in that process if someone had called me a God-denying evolutionist and a Marxist and all this other stuff because I hadn't really studied the issue. Or Pro- let's even take it a step further. Say you had dedicated portions of your ministry to speaking outwardly for theistic evolution. What would my most, I guess, productive contribution to your walk with God be? Would it be, A, to confront you and make this uh, basically a point of passion and contention in your relationship with God, ultimately being a distraction? Would it be B, to give you and your relationship with God room to grow, and if it ever came into my life, there were people in my congregation saying, this is a Scott Richards guy, he keeps talking about evolution, and I would just gently say, well, I'd respectfully disagree with him on that issue here, here, and here, but let's just make sure we understand the non-negotiables from the negotiable. I've had conversations with people I know and love that have held this view, and I was able to talk to them to a point, but because I cared about them and I knew their relationship with God was intact, I could say, okay, but let's just leave it at this. I trust the work of God in your heart to not only lead you into all truth, but keep you in all truth. And we can trust that God will not only work on your heart if this issue is right. true, but right. also my heart if my right. positions are false. Right. It didn't take until that weekend before she came back to me and went, I see where you're coming from. So here's the point. To a fellow Christian, you have a lot more hope and a lot more, I guess, reason to be patient for results, because it's not just these bad slogans that are influencing your friend. But if, on the other hand, you're talking to a non-believer, well, this is where earnestly contending for the faith is key. The best way to exercise meekness and fear, both in equal measure, strength under control, is A, to have strength, and B, to have self-control. Where does self-control come from? That comes from Galatians 5, 21 through 22. The Holy Spirit, which is in every believer. But what's also important? The strength. Know this issue. Study it. Learn it. Use that anger, not as a motivation to lash out against them, but do what I do. I always study when I'm annoyed, and I yeah. study extra passionately if I know that someone's going to hold this to me later, thus uh, paid off here. So Yeah, being patient and able to teach. In other words, just saying, well, let's sit down and let's take a look at what the Word has to say. You agree that that's the standard. I agree that's the standard. Hopefully, prayerfully, that'll God will use that to lead them into all truth. All right, well, we'll see you all again tomorrow. Feel free to join us for the next hour if you're watching us live for our study through Revelation 19. We won't get Woo. through it, but we'll Very start. Very exciting. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.